you the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everybody in between. And uh, it's midsummer now here in the UK. It's, we're recording on a blazing hot day. It makes um, a bit of a difference. So maybe we'll sound a bit sunnier, but we got some spooky topics for you today. <laughs> yeah, we might. A bit sunnier, maybe a bit sweatier. Um, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> that's an image you don't want. Um, so I, I, my good news this week, Ben is no jots this week. No weird occurrences. No dragonflies. No dragonflies, no nothing. And that sounds a bit disappointing for a paranormal podcast, but <laughs> there is a bit of me that's incredibly relieved about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I've been looking out for strange things. I did actually drive down that road you were talking about, but sadly nothing happened. Nothing doing. No. Also, before we get into this week's episode, I've uh, got an update on last week's podcast where we discussed the phenomena of bizarre staircases appearing in the national parks of America and beyond. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, some interaction on social media from uh, someone who's a big follower of the show named uh, perfectly for this topic, Justin Woodman. Oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he shared an article with us that seems to suggest that there was this one of the stories we featured on last week's podcast was about uh, the guy who worked in the search and rescue team mm, and some yeah. of his experiences that was posted on Reddit. Uh, uh, and it looks like it could be a case of uh, fictional creepypasta mm. going on there. Uh, he found a link and some various research that um, Justin has done. Uh, and it looks like it was produced by someone called Kerry Hammond, uh, who is planning to turn these stories that have been posted on Reddit ar- about this character into a fictional novel. So, uh, yeah. So, as we maybe suspected a little bit on the podcast, it did seem a bit too good to be true, that story. Not that some of the other ones uh, uh, did come from kind of other sources other than Reddit. And as Justin himself says it does seem that there are genuine stories based on staircase in the woods but uh, i guess this one maybe that one may be uh more likely to be creepypasta i think well i mean it does ring true when you start sort of listening to yourself back talking about these things there's a lot of dialogue in there from the sort of people within the story which you know, maybe you would have less of that. That's a sort of a storytelling technique rather than the relaying of a right, a factual right. things. But and and um, Justin pointed out as well as as we did on the podcast, there did seem to be a lot of similarities to some of the stories in the four one one cases, which you know I think we said at the time could either mean oh there's something going on that's related, or you know it's been influenced by that, which looks like that's the case. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so. I thought today, what we're in need of on our podcast, Ben, is a little bit of culture. Oh, I like a bit of culture. Yeah, Yeah. we all like a bit of culture, right? And if you remember a few episodes ago, we uh, did an episode looking at haunted theatres in Britain. Yes, I like that one. Yeah, that was a good episode. It was tales of performance venues in the UK and the ghosts that are said to inhabit them. So if you've not heard that one, go back. uh, I think it's called Britain's Haunted Theatres or Haunted Theatres in Britain. Uh, it's a good episode, that one. Well, the and one thing I remember from that that you told me, which I didn't know about and I always look out for now, is the ghost light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, every time I've got a friend that I didn't realise works in the theatre and I asked, and yeah, they've got a ghost light in theirs. So Excellent. that's cool, isn't it? Yeah, it's really cool. Um, 
And on that episode, we discussed how creepy a theatre is, especially when it's empty and especially at night. And it got me thinking about other public places that would be equally as spooky. And museums came to my mind. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know if it's because I've watched Night at the Museum with my kids way too many times, but I think that would be, in some ways, creepier than a theatre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, there's all those objects with so much, you know, actual real history behind them. Yeah, not only that, the buildings themselves, a bit like the theatres, are old and have incredible histories. But you're right, some of the artefacts as well, uh, and backstories around those artefacts... And we talked about it. We did uh, we did another episode way back now on uh, called Objects of Evil, and that that creepiness about an object holding some spirit, spiritual energy, if you believe in that kind of concept, mm. um, in some ways is scarier, I think, than seeing a real ghost. So you've got all these themes in a theatre that that kind of tie in with it, right? There, mm. There's the building itself, there's the objects, uh, and the history behind both of those things. So I started to imagine what it would be like to spend the night in a museum on a ghost hunt. Uh, and then I found an article, it's from a couple of years ago, but it maybe gives you a bit of an insight of what it might be like. So let's begin with that. It's about a couple of New York-based ghost hunters, or as they are described, ghost doctors, they call themselves. I'm not sure what, what the prescriptions are like, but yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a weird, with the ghost doctors is quite weird. Presumably they wouldn't give x-rays you yeah. wouldn't need to although they're probably listening to this game well you're bloody called the quantum mechanic so you can shut your well face. that's fair enough that <laughs> yeah. is a good point yeah. yeah i stand corrected yeah yeah um so their their names are pete and Stu candle they were given access to new york's metropolitan museum of art a few years ago now after receiving some strange reports about paranormal activity in the museum they spent a spooky night there with a reporter from observer uh, a magazine in tow. <clears throat> the reporter's name was Jordan Taylor, uh, who was with the pair of ghost hunters and describes the night. So I'm going to quote from Jordan. They say, We swept the Egyptian artifact gallery looking for sudden spikes on our EMF meters. Though our hearts leaped as we detected a few pre- preliminary spikes, the doctors, the ghost hunters, mm. attributed that to the museum's electrical cables. The readings became measurably stronger when we held the meters directly above the floor. We moved on. So, a bit of a false alarm in a spooky venue to start off with. In the European Sculpture and Decorative Arts Wing, we spotted an EMF spike in an ornate room containing Louis XV's oak writing table. Dr. Pete the ghost hunter, produced his electronic voice phenomenon recorder, his EVP, in the hopes of communicating with the energy. If anybody's there, we'd love to speak with you, Dr. Pete said aloud. As the recorder ran, we each asked questions. Are you a man? Did you work here? When did you exist in the physical world? Dr. Pete then held the device to his ear and played back the recording. He looked serious. I don't want to say for sure that it's something but, he said. He ran the recording for us and our scepticism suffered a scare. We couldn't deny the indecipherable ghostly hiss that came in response to our questions. The ghost doctor said they'd have to further analyse the recordings on their home software. Um, So, uh, reminding me a bit of that episode that we did on EVPs as well. Yeah. You know, 
and the the varying things. So I, it doesn't say what happened to the mixes afterwards because I know when we talk to Tony Hayes, you can find a lot more layers of information and sound in the recordings when you do analyze them outside of the environment yeah itself. changing the speed as well and things like that yeah but they definitely got something of an evp even if it was you know uh, some kind of static hiss oh right so they never did decipher the voice well i did a lot of research trying to find out but i couldn't find any any follow-up as whether the the voice came up which may which may suggest that nothing more came of it to me you think you'd post it right if you'd got mm, something mm. more out of it dr stew decided it was time to break out the dousing rods two skinny metal rods one for each hand that supposedly detect currents of radiation if we felt a magnetic pull in a certain direction we were to follow it almost instantly the rod in our right hand jerked to the right we followed the metal tool towards a set of intricate gilded doors there the rod stayed firmly parallel if you'd like to communicate with us, cross the rods, Dr. Stew commanded. About 30 seconds later, our rods crossed. Dr. Stew asked the energy to uncross the rods. The rods uncrossed. He asked the energy to cross the rods if it was female, and the rods crossed again. So I guess even the slightly sceptical journalist experienced something in that night. Um, now, it doesn't say who in the article who was holding the rods, so I'm sure sceptics will say that it's something either consciously or subconsciously controlling them by the person rather yeah, than... Yeah, micro-movements. Yeah, rather than evidence of spirits. I, I don't know what I think about dousing rods, really. I mean, I think they fit into the same category as Ouija boards in that... Um, it's, I think it's really, really hard. I think a lot of people would say, like with a Ouija board, that it's micro-movements. But then I've been there and I have experienced things happening, but I, I, I still can't, you know, I can't say for sure whether it was my subconscious that was moving it or not. I suspect the same thing might be said about dousing rods. Although you then, you look at people like, um, you know, Yuri Geller, who has used them, it's a great effect to, to find actual oil and people have paid him to do it. So yeah, yeah, that's true. I don't know. Yeah. And there seems to be a, a lot of, uh, I don't know if it's scientific, but anecdotal evidence at least of the being used to find water. And so, yes, I, I mean, I guess there might be some science behind it. Well, maybe worth us doing a bit more explanation, exploration on it. Cause it's not really a topic I know much about. To yeah. Honest. Yeah. Um, so, after that night, it seems that the ghost doctors returned to the Met in New York on a number of occasions to continue their investigations. Um, there are also ghostly sightings connected to the Metropolitan Museum that have been spotted by staff who work there. At the Henry R. Luce Centre for the Study of American Arts, the phantom of a young girl has been seen running down the halls, her giggling and chatter giving unexpected frights to studious art historians and curators. According to museum law, L-O-R-E, She's believed to be the daughter of a long-ago employee. We, uh, that, that sparked something in me, because it's interesting. There seems to be a theme in many of these cases that have connections to deceased employees coming through in paranormal activity. We saw that a lot in the Haunted Theatres episode as well. Yeah. They were people that worked there or connected to them. Um, I guess it's a nice place to be, so maybe you don't want to leave, yeah. Yeah, well... 
I I think probably as well, like you say, that that connection that maybe actors have with places where they've performed. If if you are um, a curator, then perhaps you have a similar sort of relationship to the artifacts that you've you've put into that that building. Yeah, and like an actor, maybe in some ways even stronger. If like you say, if you're a create uh, a curator. Or you work in a museum, you're not really doing it for the cash, right? You're doing no. it because it's a real vocation and you've got a love of that place. And they are amazing places. So you you, you must put a lot of your own personal energy. And, you know, if ghosts do exist and you spent a lot of time there, why wouldn't you still hang around there? Mm. Yeah, agreed. Um, <clears throat> well, let's move on to the Cleveland Art Museum. So another art museum. I'm sorry, Cleveland, but I always think of Spinal Tap. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Cleveland. So I do apologise, but I, it came into my head. I had to say it. It was almost Spinal Tap Tourette's coming out. Anyway, the Cleveland Art Museum uh, has had an appearance from a celebrity ghost. Oh. And that is a topic we've talked about on the podcast before as well, right? Yeah, We yeah. did a whole episode on people who've been haunted by celebrities. And I remember we did a poll, didn't we? Uh, which was got lots of traction, uh, and I think Robin Williams came up top of our oh, poll yes. of who you'd like to be haunted. Yes, by. that's right. Yes, but probably not if you're an art lover. So in 2015, the Cleveland Art Museum ran an exhibition titled "Painting the Modern Garden: Monet to Matisse," and it seems the famed impressionist painter Monet, who died in 1926 decided to oversee the preparations of the exhibition, or is ghosted, at least. On the balcony, overlooking the gallery, a man with Monet's characteristic salt-and-pepper beard, wearing his trademark bowler-style hat, was spotted keeping a watchful eye on various canvases that were being put in place below. Now, that's not just anecdotal. There is a photo of that, which we will Oh, really? Yeah, there's a photo of that. We'll put it on our... Uh, social media uh, at TQM podcast on Facebook. We always do a photo album that accompanies the episode. So go and check it out for yourself. But in the photo, uh, it was it was taken by one of the museum staff. In the photograph, the ghostly figure is seen standing on the balcony in a very similar pose to an image of Monet on a giant canvas being stall- installed at the ground level below. So you've got this picture of... I'll describe the picture, but yeah, do go and have a look at it on, on our Facebook. You've got, on the balcony, you've got this guy with this massive long beard and a bowler-style hat who's just standing there in a very similar pose on the top of a balcony. Below the fo- photograph, at the very bottom, there is an image of Monet on a huge canvas, pretty much in the same pose, looking exactly the same. Wow. And it doesn't, you know, nobody's suggesting that's been tampered with or created. Well, the Cleveland Museum claimed the sighting is real. Uh, Soon after the story emerged, Caroline Guscott, communications director for the museum, said to a local newspaper, what are the chances someone looks like that and happens to be at the museum the day we are finishing installation? Now, it could be a publicity stunt. They could Mm. have set the whole thing up. It wouldn't be a bad shout, would you? And to no. be honest, part of me wouldn't blame a museum for doing that. You know, they're amazing places and they want to get bums on, well, not bums on seats, but bums through the door. So, but 
yeah it, uh, there's something about it that's quite weird what i what i think i guess you could argue this either way but what i think is interesting it could have just been a coincidence or somebody a fan who dressed up as monet who'd come to the exhibition on the first day then you'd kind of go well you could see how that happened but it was the fact it was during the installation so as far as i can tell the gallery wasn't open at the point that the photograph was taken they were putting everything in place for the upcoming exhibition of monet and matisse's work and then this guy spotted there so unless you've got you know they've gone oi colin in maintenance you look a bit like monet stick this bowler hat on go and stand up there we're going to take a photo of you and get some press but it's intriguing it's definitely worth a look at the photo it's it's really interesting okay I mean, he's a distinctive-looking fella as well. Yeah, he's because he he has got that really long beard, and he's not always seen wearing his kind of bowler-style hat, but quite often. Mm. And yeah, even the way that the figure is standing is very similar to the image that's in the on the bottom. Yes, of the he has a unique stance, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Uh, this is not the only time a strange art-loving spirits have been spotted at the Cleveland Gallery. Former museum director William Matheson Millikin uh, has been seen returning to the museum from the afterlife. He's been spotted wearing his distinctive tweed jacket, walking in the oldest sections of the museum and galleries. But Ben, one of the strangest reports of ghostly activity at the Cleveland Art Museum is one where a long dead subject of a painting has been seen staring at himself. Oh, <laughs> Oh, gosh. That is creepy. It does put a chill just even yeah. saying that, doesn't mm. it? So the painting is by uh, Jacques-André Joseph. It's called The Portrait of Jean-Gabriel de Thale at the signing of the Treaty of Vienna. It was completed, the painting, in 1740. So, yeah, the majestic ghostly frame of Jean-Gabriel, the subject of the painting, has been seen at the museum staring at his own image. Wow. In, in his full... You in know, his full outfit, full, yeah, yeah. Full, full regalia. God, I wonder what's going through his mind. Yeah, now, there's another weird thing. Yeah, is he going, God, dear, do I really look like that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could have done, tidied up my hair a bit more. Now, weirdly, uh, the, the ghost who's seen looking at his photos, Jean-Gabriel, was the Secretary of Foreign Affairs for Louis XV. Really? Which is weird because Louis the Fifteenth, the table where the other haunting was in the Met. So that's two connections from two different museums to Louis the Fifteenth, who always know was also known as Louis the Beloved. Oh, just, I didn't know that. Yeah, just coincidental. But I thought I'd mention it because it, when I was researching it, I was like, God, another Louis the Fifteenth. Huh. And you'd think you'd go for Louis the Fourteenth, right? Because he's yeah. more famous. But there you go. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, this was inspired by one we did on haunted theatres. And there were a couple of stories, as we mentioned, about people who'd worked in theatres coming back to haunt them, or at least not wanting to leave after their death. And it seems that that theme also goes for the museums like the Smithsonian Museum. And notably, the ghost of Smithsonian's second secretary and curator, Spencer Fullerton Baird, who died in 1887. He has been seen by nearly all the night watchmen at the museum and Baird's predecessor, Joseph Henry, who weirdly also died in 1887, so there's some story there I couldn't quite fathom, um, has been seen clothed in the garments he wore in life, 
He walks through the exhibits. This bit's really spooky. And then he's seen to return to a statue of himself in the museum. Blimey, these are very narcissistic ghosts. <laughs> they are. Well, I guess if somebody's done a painting of you or a statue, you'd probably be a little bit narcissistic about it. I guess so, yeah. Because you think, if you think about it, if you're a ghost, you'd cling on to that, wouldn't yeah. you? Because that's giving you immortality right yeah, there. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that is a reason why they still come back. Is that a reason why they might still be attached to, you know, this plane? Yeah. Because if they give it up, if they went towards the light, they'd become whatever and they'd rather just hang around and, like, remember who they were. Yeah, well, if you've got any level of egotism or narcissism, not even narcissism, just egotism, there is a, probably a bit in everyone who wants to be remembered after they've gone. And, you know, it's quite amazing to think if you're a ghost, you probably go to your ghost mates, aren't you? Look, see? That's me in 1700. They're still looking at me now. Look, look. <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, he's probably lucky that he wasn't one of those sculpted in ancient Rome so that everyone could see. <laughs> yeah, his, what uh... he did or didn't have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, was, no, that was a terrible joke I was going to do, so I'm not going to do that. Um, from America, uh, I want to move on to Paris and the Louvre. I never know how to say the Louvre. Is it Louvre? I, I think I would just say Lou, Louvre, but I can't ever do a French accent. I think you do it better because you, you, if you give it that intonation, that's probably how the French okay. would do it. So the Louvre, uh, which obviously is home to the most, I guess, the most famous painting ever, the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also holds some truly gruesome exhibits, including the tomb of Philippe Pot, who was a kind of, I guess you'd call him a fixer, for the French royal family in the 15th century. His effigy can be seen there. There is one of the most spooky things I think I've ever seen. Again, we'll put it in the photo album uh, for the episode. There's a thing there called the Statue of Death from St. Innocent Cemetery, which is a particularly chilling skeletal sculpture. Really terrifying. If you saw it in a modern horror film, you would freak out. But this this thing's from the 1500s. Very, very freaky. I'm going to look at this while we're talking about. Yeah, so this is the... And it's, I mean, there's no claims that these things are particularly haunted, but they're, they're just kind of macabre interests. So it's the Statue of Death from St. Innocent's Cemetery at the Louvre. There's also the Headless Statue of St. Valerie... Uh, which depicts her holding her own head in her own hands. So she's holding her head at about chest level. and She's got no head on top, but that's a, a weird statue there. And there's also artwork from the 1300s depicting St. Francis of Assisi receiving the stigmata. And we, uh, as listeners, regular listeners will know, we did a whole episode on the stigmata and, and, uh, and did something around Francis. I can see Ben's face. You found it, haven't you? I have found it, yeah. Now, how chilling is that? That is really gross. Um, I don't even know how to describe that. I mean, I suppose it was supposed to be, but um, it's kind of like um, if... It's something from like a Clive Barker novel. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's like um, Skeletor has decided to dress up for the evening. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's very yeah. strange. But probably, so I, I, I don't think there's any necessarily saying that any of those things are particularly haunted, but they are quite bizarre and macabre. 
Probably the Louvre's most famous real-life ghostly apparition is that of someone called, and this is scary enough in itself, someone called Jack the Skinner. Oh. Who was one of Queen Catherine's henchmen in the 16th century. So this former butcher, who was nicknamed Jack the Skinner, worked for Queen Catherine. Now, Ben, I don't think you need much of a job description to work out what he did for the Queen. He was a former butcher and he's known as Jack the Skinner, right? So you can probably use your imagination. Just made sausages, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. However, fearing that he knew too much, Queen Catherine had him murdered. Now, obviously, the Louvre was originally a royal palace before it became a museum. So it's got that history. And Jack the Skinner has been seen haunting the site since his execution. Modern sightings see him in the hallways of the Louvre, dressed in red, walking down the halls. I, you wouldn't want to bump into him, would you? Um, no, really not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I wonder whether he's walking around carrying all that guilt. Oh, do you think that's what it is? He's mm. trying to kind of make redemption yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, he's, he's probably standing there looking at the portrait of uh, some Francis of Assisi getting the stigmata. Saying, Can I have a bit of that, please? Please, <laughs> please help me, help me. Let's move a little closer to home, Ben. Let's move to London and the paranormal goings on at the British Museum. And a really good article that I found weirdly in uh, the Economist magazine, which is a business magazine, but yeah. still they had covered a supernatural story, so good on them. The article's from Killian Fox, and it's from uh, last year, and it's all about hauntings at the British Museum, which is a lovely museum. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's oh yeah, it's a yeah, beautiful it's place. Uh, so. Killian writes, In the late evening, after the last members of the public have been ushered out of the building and the outer gates have been bolted shut, a swift, palatable change comes over the British Museum. The museum is the most popular tourist attraction in Britain, which I didn't know that. I didn't know. Uh, It's ahead of Tate Modern and the National Gallery. More than 6.2 million people visited in 2019. I'm sure their kind of COVID put a real dampener on that, which is annoying. Uh, and that works out as 17,000 people visit the museum a day. Good God. Yeah. yeah. So without these visitors, the relentless thrum of activity beneath the glass and steel lattice roof of the Great Court fades to a whisper. A thick silence fills the cavernous galleries that surround it, each one loaded with artefacts that encompass the arc of human history. By the time the night shift begins, this is where we're kicking in, (laughs) (laughs) most of the lights in the museum have been extinguished. The security staff, who patrol the length and breadth of the 14-acre complex until early morning, carry out many of their duties by torchlight. (laughs) You're picturing it, right? That's creepy enough. I'm looking at some pictures inside the museum now. Uh, scouring the premises for anomalies, these are the security staff, they look for water leaks, the smell of gas, maybe an employee trapped in a remote corridor. They cast their beams into dark corners, the shadows melting back to reveal a warlike Roman bust or an Aztec mask with shining eyes and teeth. They may even confront a real human being like the body of an ancient Egyptian, 5,500 years dead, huddled inside a reconstruction of his sandy grave. Even so, often a patrol encounters a noise, a flash, a movement, or simply a sudden lurch in the pit of their stomachs. It stops them, 
even hardened veterans, in their tracks. Sometimes it's the doors. To complete a full circuit of the museum, more than 3,000 doors need to be opened and closed. Some of these, particularly ones that seal off the major galleries, are cumbersome to shut, but when bolted, they won't open again without a tussle, except when they do. Take the Sutton Ho Gallery. H-double-O, who or ho? Yeah, Sutton Who, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sutton Who, yeah. That's um, an area where they found loads of remains i think they are early saxon remains you are correct yes it houses treasures from the anglo-saxon era including an anglo-saxon ship among them uh, the artifacts there are is a ferocious looking helmet believed to have been worn by redwald king of east anglia in the seventh century on one occasion a guard bolted the double doors and moved to the next room only to be informed by a CCTV operator that the doors stood wide open again. Video footage of the gallery showed them moving spontaneously. Wow. That's pretty cool. That is cool. I I did try and find that footage, but I couldn't. So if anyone out there has come across that footage, do let us know, because we'd love to share it with everyone else. But yeah, that would be freaky, wouldn't it? And, And as it said earlier in the article, these doors are not, you know it's not like a door in your house these are big hefty things that were bolted shut yeah yeah sometimes it's a sudden drop in temperature like the unnerving patches of cold air that linger next to the winged human-headed bull of nimrod at the entrance to the assyrian galleries sometimes it's the sound of footsteps or music or even crying where no obvious source can be found and sometimes it might be the objects themselves One night, a security guard was passing through the African galleries in the basement and paused for a moment before the figure of a two-headed dog. The guard believed that this 19th century wooden Congolese fetish, bristling with rough iron nails, possessed some mysterious power. On this particular night, he felt the irresistible compulsion to point a finger at it. As he did so, the fire alarms in the gallery went off. Don't point. <laughs> that would freak you out, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would, yeah. Hey, yeah. look at you, you two-headed dog. Wee, wee, wee. A few days later, the guard returned to the gallery with his brother, who also pointed at the two-headed dog. Again, the alarm sounded. I'm going to look up the picture of this two-headed dog. One yeah, again, we'll put that in the, um, the photo album that accompanies the episode. Uh, I had a, a, because I read the story before I saw the image of it, I had a different image to what it actually looks like, but it it is a pretty menacing, maybe, aggressive looking creature. Yeah, I've got it. Oh, the heads aren't where I thought they were going to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a bit like a push push me, pull me, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, Now, this article then goes on, uh, this article with The Economist then goes on to talk about an American artist called Noah Angel. Everyone seems to have relevant names in this podcast today. Uh, Who has been researching hauntings at the museum since 2016. Noah talks about a number of visitor photos that contain weird spectral images. And at one stage, staff at the museum actually held a seance to work out what was going on. 
So it's obviously something where there's kind of considerable activity. This bit's really interesting. It reminded me of someone else. Noah talks about his research. He says, I thought there would be half a dozen or so stories, which everyone knows, and that they circulate around the museum, and little variations and mutations are created. He assumed that documenting them would be straightforward. Four years on, the tales are still pouring in. More than 50 visitors and staff have spoken to him so far, and there are no signs of supply running dry, which really reminded me of Christopher Joseph and uh, Jeff the Talking Mongoose when yeah. we talked to him, because similar to this guy, Noah Angel, he started researching the Jeff case, took it, thought it would take him a few months, and it took him five years. So yeah. this guy is in a similar position, which is interesting. Now... <sighs> I think we need to get in contact with this guy, Noah, um, which we will try and do. And if you're listening or anyone out there knows him, let him know that we're after him. Um, Noah does give unofficial walking tours of the museum, like ghostly walking tours, or he did so pre-COVID. I don't know if he's still doing them now, but hopefully he'll do them again. So, yeah, I think, don't you think? That would be brilliant. I don't know if we'd be able to record in the museum, but imagine if we managed to record, go around with this guy who knows all the ghost stories. That'd yeah, be yeah. amazing. Wouldn't it? Yeah, no, that would be fantastic. We're getting quite a list now of kind of field trips that we need to get on, right? Yes, yeah. There is also uh, a chilling tale of something experienced by the night shift security team. Around 3am, an alarm went off in a disabled toilet and a pair of guards rushed over to check what was going on. Nothing seemed amiss until a guard received a call from a CCTV operator who said that large balls of white light were hovering above the staircase in the Great Court and chasing each other through the air. We can't see anything, the security guard responded. They're all around you, the CCTV operator replied. The appearance of the orbs coincided with an exhibition called Germany, Memories of a Nation, which ran from October 2014 to January 2015. The guard who stood among the balls of light wondered if they might be connected to one of the exhibits, a, a white wrought iron gate from the concentration camp at Birkenwald that bore the motto, Jedem des Sein, which translates to each what he deserves. The guard says, you get objects that hold energy. Nothing else in the exhi exhibition has anything that would have caused something like that. I'm not really surprised if someone attached to that object was to come with it. You couldn't blame them, to be quite honest. I'm happy to have them here. The orbs appeared at the same time each night until the exhibition ended. Uh, the guard goes on to say, when the German exhibition went, the security guard said, they went. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Is there any footage of that? Again, I couldn't find it. If anyone out there has got that footage or finds it, because you would think if it's happening on a regular basis, yeah. somebody from the CCTV, although I'm slightly, <laughs> I'm starting to worry if the CCTV operator is a bit of a joker, because <laughs> they seem to be involved in a lot of these sightings. Well, you can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jeff, he's pointing at the dog again. Set the alarm off. That'll freak him out. <laughs> Yeah, but I suppose, like with most of these things, they 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 tend to be imperceptible um, without mechanic uh, without electronic devices. Yeah, you know, don't know why. Yeah, 
Well, uh, you know, there's there's more. There's a guy called Irvin Finkel who's a curator at the museum in the Middle East department. He reckons it's a fruitful place to look for ghosts for lots of reasons. Finkel is interested in magic and demonology. Uh, it says here, with his long white beard and circular glasses, he's the epitome of a scholar who spends his time deciphering cuneiform inscriptions in Sumerian and Babylonian. He might be the one in that photo we talked about earlier as well. Uh, his views on the supernatural are more surprising. Throughout history, he says, many cultures have considered ghosts a fact of life. He argues that the belief in some form of spiritual lingering after its death is deep-seated in the human psyche. Our current relative scepticism, only about half of the British population professes to believe in ghosts, is an anomaly, he says. To his great annoyance, Finkel has never actually seen a ghost himself. He puts that down to a lack of sensitivity on his part, but he reckons the museum offers plenty of opportunity. One, there's a lot of dead bodies here, he said. Then there's a lot of curators who spend their lives, their entire lives here, and some of them died on the premises. So again, it's the, the attachment thing is being, you know, there's an assumption that maybe that is what's going on there. Yeah, and weirdly, not, not many people talk about the artefacts themselves holding some kind of spiritual power, although the example with the orbs does yep, kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. And, and the two-headed dog. Um, but you're right, the theories tend to be something to do with the history of the building itself or something to do with the objects in the museum or the spirits of people who have worked or lived there seems to be the themes that come out from a lot of these stories. But I never knew that the British Museum was such a hotbed of paranormal activity. No, no, nor me. And it would be great, wouldn't it, to see some of those photos or that some, some of that CCTV footage if, it, if it's out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. But interestingly, there may be a more logical or, let's say, sceptical explanation for why there are so many reports of the paranormal at museums. And indeed, maybe this also ties in with some of the reasons they're often seen at theatres. As we do on this podcast, both of us do, we kind of do look for scientific papers and things of that ilk which may be connected uh, with the paranormal. I came across a study by a team from Clarkson University in America and it started, weirdly enough, after they investigated the Remington Art Museum in New York, which is a location that's synonymous with paranormal sightings. The team at Clarkson University began investigating whether there was a link between reported hauntings and air quality. Oh, that's an interesting... Place it, to go. Yeah, it really is. Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, Shane Rogers, said human experiences reported in many hauntings are similar to mental or neurological symptoms reported by some individuals exposed to toxic moulds. It is known that some fungi, such as rye ergot fungus, may cause severe psychosis in humans. The link between exposure to toxic indoor moulds and psychological effects in people are not well established, however. Rogers says, Notably, many hauntings are associated with structures that are prime environments to harbour moulds or other indoor air quality problems. Hauntings are very widely reported phenomena that are not well researched, he said. 
they are often reported in older built structures that may also suffer poor air quality. Similarly, some people have reported depression, anxiety and other effects from exposure to biological pollutants in indoor areas such as this. He says, we are trying to determine whether some reported hauntings may be linked to specific pollutants found in indoor air. Rogers is working with a group of undergraduate students to measure the air quality in several reportedly haunted places around the northern New York state. The team will gather data at several locations and by comparing these samples to samples from places with no reported hauntings, the researchers hope to identify factors unique to the haunted locations. They are looking for commonalities in the mould microbiome in places believed to be haunted compared to the control places, as well as analysing the types of toxic moulds that may cause psychological effects in humans. As a long-term fan of ghost stories, Rogers said his goal is not to debunk the legends, but to instead provide insight on why certain places are perceived to be haunted. What I do hope is that we can provide some real clues as to what may lead to some of these phenomena and possibly help people in the process, he said. So the team have been studying the data and they seem to be making some interesting discoveries. Now, I don't think this their papers published yet as we've discussed on the podcast before you've got to go through all that peer review there's stuff like that so it does you know it does take a while for these things to come out but I did find a slight update uh, where uh, the the guy leading the team says we still have more work to do but what we've been finding is that indeed there seems to be a relationship between the presence of mold and places that are reported haunted versus places that are not He says they haven't figured out which moulds specifically are causing reported hauntings, but it certainly seems that there might be a relationship there. He also says another potential culprit, carbon monoxide poisoning. Century-old research has found a connection between excess carbon monoxide and hallucinations that make people believe they're experiencing paranormal activity. Needless to say, carbon monoxide poisoning is extremely serious, so if you're experiencing the unexplainable, make sure your carbon monoxide detector is in good working order, and I guess also check for mould. See, that ergot poisoning, that is the explanation for a lot of um, medieval religious experiences as well. Yeah, it's been connected with witchcraft as well, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing, but of course... I, I, it'd be hard. That I, I guess if there's photographic imagery, that's when you can't put it down to. Yeah, and also, you know, as we were saying, the example of the guy pointing at the two-headed dog and the alarms going off. You know, unless there's a mass hallucination from the mold that everybody's buying into and hearing alarms, or somebody tripping out and deliberately pressing the alarm and not realizing they've done it. Uh, ho- hoax aside um yeah th- the mold wouldn't explain that particularly to me no 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 but it, it probably i guess it i think it explains more um the the idea that somebody sort of maybe says oh i think i see like a shadow or something like that yeah. or, that makes more sense or the one where the 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 story of the painting with the the guy looking at his own picture in the painting you could see a security guard late at night with his torch shining getting a bit of a shadow and if they are suffering from some of this hallucinations due to this type of mold 
almost, you know, almost tripping out and going, oh my God, that's the image in the painting looking at himself. I, I get yeah. those could really be about that or just a general spooky, shadowy figure. But there are certainly tales researching these hauntings at museums that can't be explained by that phenomena. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But I, I don't know. I don't know what you think, but I, I felt putting this one together on the museums versus the theatres, some of the stories are... There seems to be a lot more stories. And the British Museum, I don't don't know if it's a particularly mouldy location, but there's definitely something going on there. The other thing that occurs to me about those buildings is they're of a certain size and infrasound has always been put forward as something which can cause hallucinations. And unlike... um, Again, uh, like the ergot stuff, that wouldn't explain physical things like fire alarms going off and stuff but it, again it might explain why people find things spooky or yeah things like that um it hasn't really been proven that that is the case but infrasound can you, you know you could see how it could form in those large buildings yeah i mean what i what i think is quite interesting especially when it comes to staff at a museum and people who have spent a long time working at these locations is we had it a bit when we uh, did the Mr. Mrs. Tipple episode, who's the ghost in the pub where we often record. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we spent the night there. And there was there was numerous occasions where we went, is that something? And we're going, I don't know if it's something, because I've never been in this place at night when it's quiet. <laughs> you know what I mean? So a creak or a noise or something is like, well, that just might be what this building's like rather than anything paranormal. But I think it's interesting with people who work there on a regular basis and spend a lot of time there, especially the security staff at night. You must, over time, get used to those uh, eccentricities of the building and the place itself. So Mm. something unusual does stand out, which I think is fascinating. So, you know, like my response was, oh, yeah, it'd be great to spend a night at the British Museum and see if we can find anything haunted. But we would just freak ourselves out because we don't know what is goes on in that place when it's not in paranormal mode. You yeah, know that's I mean? right. Uh, this I knew this reminded me of a story and I was just checking it out. So uh, I think this was on the BBC... Um, oh, gosh, that's, it's eight years ago now, November 2013. But there's um, in the Manchester Museum, there was a 3,008-year-old Egyptian statue that was seen on CCTV camera to rotate by itself. Now, the BBC and the independent newspaper ran the story that an engineer came in to look at the statue and said it was um, bus vibrations from outside. The only thing about that explanation is, and this is one of those typical ones where people haven't, they much rather sort of swallow the... Go for the obvious. go, Go for the obvious and go, it can't be an ancient curse. I'm not saying it is an ancient curse, but if you look at the video, there are other statues around it on the same shelf that don't move. And it, it happens, it does happen in the, in the day, but it also happens in the dead of night. And there aren't any buses running in the dead of night. Right. So why would a bus vibration cause that? And I think the other thing we've got to sort of... Yeah, 
you, when you read a story like that, like why would you have an engineer come in to look at a rotating statue? That is a weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is a weird thing, and I think that that is somebody. My feeling on that is probably someone did come and look at it, and the museum doesn't want people to sort of associate it with giving any credibility to anything paranormal. So right. they just go, it's buses. Like, I might be completely wrong, and there might be a reason why that part of the shelf is susceptible to yeah, vibrations. Yeah. But I don't know. It, it seems weird to me. And if you, if you look at the video of it, I think it's um, I think it's a weird one. So if people wanted to Google that, what would they search? Um, just um, Egyptian statue rotating Manchester Museum. Perfect. Yeah, oh, I'll check that out afterwards as well. I've not seen that. Yeah, well, fascinating museums generally, but when you throw in a bit of paranormal, it's it's a double win for me. I think it's a double win as well. I do think we should definitely try and get in contact with that guy who does the tours of the British Museum if he's still doing them, because I'd, I'd love to do that, whether we cover it on the podcast or not. Of course, we will cover it, but yeah, it sounds fascinating, because when I was reading the article, I was just like, and another one, and another one. There is so much going on there. It, I think as well, it would be a ripe location to sort of see for yourself, like how likely it is that hallucinations and stuff are playing a part. Because it's very difficult to get any sense of like the size of some of these objects and um, the the air around them. If you know what I mean, like the how it feels and all of that. You, you can get it from um, a little bit by looking at photographs, but not so much. Yeah. And I think I'd really like to sort of feel... And then again, I, it'd be quite interesting to take that to the next level and go, well, am I feeling this way because of intra- infrasound? I'm not sure I can afford an infrasound monitoring device, but yeah. it would be, yeah, it would just be a cool thing to do. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Ben, that's as close to culture as we're probably going to get on this podcast, so I hope you've enjoyed it out there. <laughs> I I have very much enjoyed it, and um, yeah, you've inspired me to. Um, uh, the, we're we're very lucky living out in Oxfordshire. We've got some amazing museums around yeah. us. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pop down to the Ashmolean. I always like going to the Ashmolean Museum and looking at the Egyptian artifacts. They're amazing. That's another thing we could do. We could get in contact with them and say, look, have you had any hauntings and stuff? There must be a lot of hauntings going on in Oxford because again, it's got all those. It's ripe for all those conditions, whether they be paranormal or kind of old buildings with mould, I guess. That's true. And if all else fails, they have got a lovely restaurant. Yeah, perfect. All right. Well, um, well, we'll be back with another episode next week on The Quantum Mechanics. See you then. Bye. Quantum mechanics.